Welcome to episode 6 of the Inclusion Initiative, a Jedi AAM podcast, a production of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Each month, this podcast will feature established leaders as well as a diverse group of members in the specialty of emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Kimberly Brown, current AAEM at-large board member, speaks with AAEM immediate past president, Dr. Lisa Moreno. So why don't we start with how did you grow up and where did you grow up? I am a New York City girl, New York City born and raised, and I very much identify as a New Yorker. I've only lived in three different places that I've actually lived in. New York City, New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, Greenville, North Carolina. And I truly, truly do identify as a New Yorker. I have a New York accent. I'm a fast-talking person. I'm a get-straight-to-the-point person. I'm a very transparent person. And uh, and so my personality is very typically uh, New York, and that has not gone away even after 15 years of living outside of New York City. Do you have any siblings? Um, I do. I have uh, one living sister and one sister who was murdered when uh, I was in my 20s. She was 22. I'm sorry. That's very difficult. Um, how did that impact you? Did At that point, did, did you decide to go into medicine because no. of that? Or how did that impact you? Unfortunately, it's not an uncommon experience for people of color in New York City and many urban centers. I know a lot of people who went through a similar thing, who lost a sibling or a cousin. It is um, it is fairly common. Mm-hmm. It is, unfortunately. And, and it's, yeah, it's really painful. Um, I don't think my mother ever recovered from it, but um, yeah. I understand that. So what made you want to become a physician then? I would honestly say my first thing that I wanted to do starting maybe in the fifth grade was to be a social justice attorney. And a lot of that had to do with the things that I saw when I was growing up. You know, it is typical for families in New York City, underrepresented minorities to have a a family member murdered. It is also very common to have a family member who is a drug addict. It is also common to have a family member go to jail. In fact, you just expected it. Your male cousins and your male siblings that would have that as part of their experience of growing up. And so I very much was interested in social justice. And I wanted to be a social justice attorney. And so um, that was something that I seriously considered doing. And then I changed my mind in middle school because I became exposed more to science. I mean, the science that we did in elementary school was more, um, you know, geology and this is a rock and this is a you know, this is a cumulus cloud and that sort of thing. Then getting into biology in middle school, I really was fascinated by biology and fascinated by the concept of genes and chromosomes and thought that I, you know, I would like to be a doctor. And, you know, it's the cliche that medical students will tell you during their interview that they want to help people. But I did. And obviously that was my bent. And I um, and I feel very, very compelled to that was something my grandparents raised us with. They said, you know, you were and this was not in an insulting way, but you were born to be nothing. You didn't have any privilege when you were born into our family, but you were given opportunities by the grace of God and the kindness of other people who recognized your intelligence or recognized your potential. And therefore, we didn't have the word pay it forward. We didn't have that phrase, but that's what I was told, that you are obligated to do for others because you have been given so many incredible opportunities. And so um, I grew up with that attitude of service and I wanted to, and I decided I wanted to be a physician. Mm-hmm. I had a child very early in life. And so when I, so initially I was told that I couldn't go to college. And- um, Was that because you had your child at such a young age? Yes. Yes. So I was told that I needed to take care of my child and that I 
that I shouldn't go to school anymore. But my grandmother said, no, she's going to go to school because my grandparents were completely fixated on the idea that the way to get the way to make it is Mm -hmm. to get an education. My grandfather used to tell us there are two things that people can't take away from you. Number one is your education and number two is your good name. So always have integrity, always keep your word and get an education. And so my grandmother said, no, we're gonna take care of the baby and and she's gonna go to school. And I did. And then um, for college, it became this whole thing of like, okay, now how am I gonna pay for college? And I can't go away. I can't move out of my community because I was dependent on my grandparents. And so I have a, had a wonderful experience. Um, my high school world history teacher paid for my first semester at Bronx Community College. She, um, wow. She just told me when I was visiting with her one day that there is no way that you are not going to go to school. She started fumbling with her purse and then she took out a check and she said, how much do you need uh, Mm. to, to pay for the first semester? And I told her. And it took me 10 years because I was raising children. It took me 10 years after I graduated from my master's degree. Um, It took me 10 years to pay her back the money that she had paid for that first tuition, first semester's tuition, but I paid her back. And after that first semester, I got a scholarship. So I did, I got straight A's, I got a scholarship, and the rest of my college was pretty much free. I don't think I had any debt, honestly. I don't think I had any debt graduating from college. Um, And then... So this is the journey of how I became a physician, right? Because I wanted to become a physician, but I was told the same way that I had been told that I couldn't finish school, that I couldn't go to college, that I, so now I was told that I couldn't uh, become a physician, that there was no way that I would have the time or the energy to do medical school right because I had a family. And so I was told Uh, by my counselor at college to become a psychiatric social worker. She said, you can still work in a hospital. You can still take care of people. You can still make people's lives better. And so I did. Hmm. Um, So I became a psychiatric social worker and, um, and I, and I liked it. I liked it. But every single day that I worked, I felt like I I felt like I knew my patients. I mean, I was working in my own community that I had grown up in and I felt like I knew my patients and I understood their culture and I spoke their language and I knew how to take care of them better in some cases than some of the physicians, but I didn't have that authority and I didn't understand pharmacology. Mm -hmm. And so I had that yearning. And again, there were two sort of critical sentinel events that took place in my life. One is that my daughter who at that time was like nine years old, said to me, um, why don't you become a doctor? And I said, well, I, I already had it in my head, right? So I was like, that was, this, that was the theme, that was the mantra, that was the, you know. And so I said, I can't because I have to take care of a family. And she looked at me and she said, we are not babies anymore. We are old enough to take care of ourselves. And if you, and I literally remember this because it isn't entirely logical. She said to me, if you do not become a doctor, the only thing that will be different in four years is that four years will have gone by and you still won't be a doctor. So you're a nine-year-old baby looked at you in your face and basically yeah. coached you like, look, mommy. <laughs> yes. And so the next day I went to work and I talked to the psychiatrist who mm-hmm. was um, in charge of the ward. I worked on the, on the child inpatient service and I talked to him and he said, well, why, why did you? He goes, I always wondered, you're very smart. Why did you never go? to medical school. And I told him the story about how I was counseled. And he said, well, he goes, who's watching your children now? And I'm like, my grandmother. And he's like, your grandmother will watch your children when you go to medical school. 
And so he helps me with my ERAS forms. And he wrote a letter of recommendation for me and told me who else to talk to, to get letters of recommendation. Um, and then I got into medical school and I was hoping and praying because I could only apply to the five schools in New York City because mm-hmm. I had a family to take care of. Right. And, exactly. and I got rejected. My MCAT scores sucked. And I got, re- well, part of the reason was I, part, part of the reason was I'm not a good test taker. But part of the reason was that I took it before I finished all my pre-med courses, because then I had to go back and do my pre-med courses at night. So I hadn't finished. Mm-hmm. I took the second semester of chemistry and the first semester of organic at the same time, which wasn't allowed, but I talked my way into it uh, so that because I, I knew when I wanted to start medical school. And so I um, I took the MCAT with... I. I took the Kaplan course, didn't understand half of what was going on because uh, I hadn't taken the classes in college, did poorly on the MCATs, but I got accepted out of the five schools I applied to, I got accepted to downstate and I got accepted to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, which was in the Bronx where I live, not that far from my house. And so, of course, I went there because I would have spent an hour and a half on the subway each way going to downstate. Um, so I got into a school that was right close to my house and I was able to take care of my family and able to go to medical school at the same time. And so that is how I became a doctor. <laughs> that long journey. No, that that is incredible. I I want to go back to what you said though. Your your high school um, teacher basically financing you and basically mm-hmm. unlocking the door for you to then to now get to this point. So, are you? What happened with her? Where is she now? Well, and she, what did that mean? She now is deceased. She was elderly when I was in high school. She was like close to 70 years old when I was in high school mm-hmm. and she died at 103 and I stayed in touch with her. I stayed in touch with her and I would visit her once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up moving to um, Pennsylvania and to a retirement community in mm-hmm. one of those Kendall communities that I think they're run by the Quakers. There's some of them all over the country, but anyway, she moved into one of those. And so yeah, it was a decent drive, but I used to visit her once a year. Um, and I was eternally grateful to her. And she always told me too, that I was the, I was the, her pride and joy. She said, if I did nothing else right in all my years of teaching and just got you to go through medical school, she said, I would be, I would feel gratified. And so that's, um, yeah, that was a really beautiful experience. That's very beautiful. And what does your daughter say about you now? I'm sure she's like, mom, give me a cut. (laughs) You know, and I'll tell you that she, at my graduation, she literally screamed and started crying. I, um, I remember the dean looking at me because they said, hold the applause until the end. And my family was like jumping out of their seats, screaming, jumping up and down. My daughter's the one who told me to go to medical school, started crying and started like running towards the stage and greeted me when I came down. And she's like, you did it, you did it. I will tell you though that, and this brings me sort of to another lesson that I tell to people when I talk about career development she was not happy. My family was not happy. My kids were not happy when I was in medical school. And because I had very little time um, for them and were not happy when I did residency, I did two residencies. And, um, and I think it's a hard thing that you have to, you have to make a decision. And I think it's harder for women because women are expected still in 2023 to be the primary caretaker of their children. That's sort of what society expects in this country. This country doesn't provide daycare. This country doesn't support 
mothers who are professionals the way is done in Scandinavia and even many of the, the Muslim countries in the Arab world that have on-site daycare in hospitals for women who are physicians, but um, this country doesn't. And so I had to accept the fact that my, my family was closer to my mother um, in some ways to my grandmother too, although she was a, less active, you know, towards the end. And so, um, and then I got married and, um, and my husband picked up so much of the childcare responsibilities. He was a contractor. He was able to schedule his, make his schedule to accommodate going to things at school, going to plays, going to concerts, going to ball games, um, I had no control over my schedule as a resident. And um, and I just literally, I remember getting told, well, I hope you never divorce Papa because if you do, we're only going to see you on holidays. And, um, and just accepting that and accepting that the person that your kid runs to when they are happy and they have an accomplishment, the person that your kid runs to for comfort is, is not you. If there's someone else in the room that they're closer to. And that's something that you have to accept. But, you know, the discussions that we have now are that my whole family benefits from the fact that I became a physician. So I made, I made a big sacrifice, but they did too. They made a huge sacrifice too. And so now I make sure that you know, my family um, reaps the benefits, right? Financial security, me being able to buy a car for someone when they get a driver's license, um, you know, that sort of thing that I would never have been able to do that. Never, never would I have been able to do that if I hadn't become a physician. I mean, yes, there are other professions that allow you to do that, but, um, but the fact that I was a psychiatric social worker, which is a decent job with a decent, you know, income, but I would not have been able to do the kind of things that I can do now for them. You make more and, and now you're able to give more. Right. And so, yes. they, you know, and, and, but again, it's like, I had to own that decision. I had to not be bitter and not be angry and not be resentful that I was not the favorite person, not like a lot of my other female colleagues who were not physicians mm -hmm. and, um, and had jobs where they worked Monday through Friday, nine to five. And they were able to be there for all their kids' evening and weekend events and parties and everything else. And, um, and their kids, you know, their pri kids' primary attachment was to them. My kids' primary attachment was not to me. And I had to consciously own that and say, not only, not only did I do two residencies, but then I was uh, I chose the path of an academic physician. So I was publishing, I was doing research I, and still am. And my job didn't end being an emergency physician or being a surgeon before that, my hours were irregular and there was no regard for nights and weekends. And there is no regard for nights and weekends. All right, now that I'm a senior uh, staff member, I don't have to work nights, but um, but there was no regard for that. And, um, and so... I wanted, and, and then when I was off of work, I was writing papers, I was writing manuscripts, I still do that. And so I'm, and, and I also do professional service like to AAM. And so um, I made that choice and I own that choice. And I know that because of that, I lost some of the experiences that I would have had as a mother, but there are mothers who decide and that they're not going to work full time or they're not going to be academic physicians or they're not going to publish or they don't need to go beyond the associate professor level um, for their own fulfillment. And they make those decisions and they own that, too. So I think that's where we're at in the United States at this time, that women especially are forced to make those decisions where you you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. And so you prioritize different things at different points in your life. Um, I think it's easier for men to have it all. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of that is due to the fact that the government does not support families in this country the way that is done in other industrialized nations. Agreed, 100% agreed on all of that. What, what I keep hearing you say is that you've done two residencies. I 
I knew you spent time in general surgery. I don't know if I ever knew that you finished that residency, but walk me through kind of now you're in medical school. What what made you to 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 pursue surgery first? And then how do we get to the switch to emergency medicine? So I'll tell you that um, in my school, emergency medicine was not a mandatory rotation and it was immensely popular. And they there was a lottery to be able to get to do an elective in emergency medicine. And that was it. There was a lottery. And I put my name in and I didn't get it. Okay. And because I didn't get it, I never realized how much I actually love emergency medicine. And so I, um, I wanted to be a family practice doctor the day that I walked into medical school. But you have to understand, I come from a family in a community where I... Um, you know, I'm one of the I am first people. And so I didn't even know a doctor. The only doctors I knew were my pediatrician and my obstetrician. Those were the only doctors I knew. And um, I didn't have friends who were doctors. My mom didn't have friends who were doctors. That wasn't the social circle we traveled in. And so to me, doctors were like awesome beings. I was like practically licking the boots of the residents and calling them, oh, doctor, oh, doctor, oh, doctor, thank you. Thank you for explaining that to me. Thank you for letting me see that. You know, um, I was just in awe. And the same reason I thought I could make a difference in my community um, by being a family practice doctor, I just loved the operating room. I loved the fact that you go in the operating room and you have one task to complete and you complete that task and you're done. So there's a clear start, a middle and a finish. And I'm very good with my hands. I have an extremely, extremely strong sense of touch um, I had the skill of being able to visualize what was underneath what I was touching. So I can see when I touch something, I can see in my mind what's underneath it. That's why I'm so good at doing central lines without ultrasound, because I can see where everything is in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I was very good with that. Um, very, very sensitive fingers, very, very sensitive sense of smell, um, I could diagnose an infection <laughs> before it manifests itself and tell you what the organism is. Um, so I, I was very good at it. And I also saw a role um, as a trauma surgeon to really okay. be Let me pause you. That That's incredible that you, you say that because it's <sighs> listening to you and knowing you that is, that sounds very woo woo. I can see, I can feel, I just know, but I, I resonate with that, that clinical, that clinical acumen, that just, that innate knowing, but when do you feel like that got developed? Not, that's not clinical acumen. So that, that I, I discovered that as soon as I went into the operating room, I discovered that, that I could do that. I just have that skill that I just can do that that my fingers are so sensitive that I can tell you the size of a lesion, that I can tell you, I, my, my, my touch is very sensitive. And so when and, you were in the operating room, tell me about the first time where you realized that that was something that you were good at. Tell me about that first time. So I actually was, and, and, and you have to realize too, that I, when I went to medical school, we operated. So by the time I graduated from medical school, I had done well over a thousand peripheral IVs and I was going into surgery. So I kept counts. I know I did, had done 58 chest tubes mm -hmm. and 136 central lines, all subclavian or IJ, because in my day, we didn't believe that femoral lines were clean. We thought there was too much fallout from vaginal and rectal uh, bacteria and that those were not clean lines. And so um, I had tremendous amount of experience. I had done three appendectomies by myself. By the time that I graduated from medical school, I had done multiple skin grafts during my burn elective. Sometimes I was in the operating room alone and the attending was going back and forth between a couple different rooms. So um, I had tremendous amount of experience. And I, when I was on my cardiothoracic surgery elective in my fourth year, that was sort of when it happened when, um, and I guess it happened because the fellow has the same 
uh, gift has the same ability of having very sensitive fingers. And I was starting to palpate, um, I was starting to palpate a vessel on the posterior surface of the heart, right? This, the circumflex. And I must have closed my eyes. And he said to me, You can see the occlusion, can't you? And I said, Yes, I can. Wow. And he said, yeah, he goes, I can do that too. He said, you're going to be a phenomenal surgeon. And then I realized that I had been seeing phlegmons on ruptured appendices. I had been seeing clots in dialysis grafts. I had been, you know, I can visualize that. So um, anyway, so I, I love doing surgery and I was a very good surgeon. The thing that I'm proudest of, of my years as being a surgeon is that I removed every breast tumor with a circum areolar incision, no matter where the tumor was. I wanted every woman who was operated on me to have beautiful breasts when I finished with her. Um, I had friends and colleagues who would just slash over the tumor and excise the tumor and leave the woman with a scar. My women did not have scars. I had a reputation for having the, for having a hundred percent cosmetic results. I would, and I worked with a female radiologist and we just were an amazing team together. And I had two female nurses, my circulator and my, um, and my scrub nurse on the days that I did breasts, which was one day a week. And my, I would be on the phone back and forth with my radiologist and she would tell me um, one millimeter more, one millimeter more at three o'clock. And I would send her one millimeter more. And then she would, you know, I mean, we, I, we took out as little as we could. And we, um, and every woman had circumareolar. I didn't care. I would dig and tunnel. And I would get told by more experienced surgeons, you're going to give her a seroma because you're digging and tunneling. But I didn't because I bound their chests. I would have the nurses sit them up after I finished. And I would circumferentially bind their chests and with ACE bandages. And I would tell them, do not touch this for 48 hours till ICU and clinic. Do not bathe. Do not touch this. Do not, you know, and I put a elastoplast on people and, and yeah, and I had great results. So I loved what I was doing, but that was not working for my family. So I was, um, I was forbidden to go to the movies with my family after getting beeped seven times during a movie. And, um, and they said I was an embarrassment to them because I continually disturbed everybody. And then people knew that I was with them. And so by proxy, they were unruly and rude and a disturbance. And then, um, and then that, same daughter, <laughs> she's my conscience, um, said to me one day, you love your patients more than you love us. And I said, why would you say that? That's completely untrue. And she said, you walked out of my birthday party to operate on a person. And I said, I did. I said, he had gangrenous bowel from an incarcerated hernia and he would have been septic and dead if I didn't leave your party. And she said, well, there you have it. There you have it. There's the proof. That meant more to you? Yeah. Okay. That's the proof. And I just realized that was the sentinel event, but I realized that that was not, um, that was not working. And so I thought about what else I like to do. And I realized that the best part for me, really the best part of every trial was what happened in the emergency department. And having been on both sides, right, I can tell you that that's where life is saved is in the emergency department. Um, we do the same thing in the operating room over and over again. A trauma laparotomy is a trauma laparotomy is a trauma laparotomy. We do the same exact operation every single time. And when you find a hole, you close the hole. That's it. So, you know, that was, um, that was just the way that it was. And so I realized the exciting part is figuring out what's going on, figuring out 
is this liver laceration something I can watch? Or is this liver laceration something I need to send to the OR with the surgeons? Is this patient someone I need to transfuse? Is this confusion because the patient is shocked? Or is this conf confusion because something else is going on, like there's a brain bleed? Who gets a CT? Who doesn't get a CT? Who do I need to you know, give blood products to? Who do I not? Um, and figuring out exactly what's wrong with the patient. Life is saved in the emergency department. And I realized that was truly, for me, the most exciting part of trauma care. And so I also started to think about how I had lacked a lot of the skills. Um, I had let a lot of my skills sort of go to the wayside because I wasn't doing obstetrics. I wasn't doing psychiatry. I wasn't doing any of that. And so I decided to go back and do a residency in emergency medicine. And when I did that, I was shocked to find that most places didn't want to interview me because CMS CMS only pays for a certain number of years of training. And after that, CMS will not reimburse the hospital um, for, for the person's training. And so people didn't want me because they weren't going to get reimbursed. And then, um, and then I would get questioned when I interviewed at Jacoby, which is where I had gone to medical school, right? I went to Albert Einstein, which was affiliated with Jacoby Hospital principally. And you know, that city hospital. And so, so the guys who had been residents when I was a, a medical student were interviewing me because they were now the attendings and the program directors. And one person who was an assistant program director, she had been my junior medical student when I was a senior medical student. But anyway, um, they were like, are you out of your mind? You've been an attending and you're making buckets of money. And um, which I really wasn't because I worked at a public institution, um, but I was making good money. And they were like, well, you know, do you, do you want to do this? Are you sure you want to now go back to working? Well, and I said, look, as a surgeon, I worked 120 hours a week. I can handle 80 hours a week as a resident in emergency medicine. Now there's all, you know, duty hour uh, regulations. And I said, and I'm going to be working 80 hours a week and I'm going to be tired and I have my family. So I'm not going to be needing to, to spend a lot of money. Right. So I'm not going to be going out a lot. I'm not going to be buying as many clothes. So I'll have a lower income, big deal. And anyway, I convinced them to take me. <laughs> because When the rank list came out, I matched at Jacoby, which was my first choice. They, I'd gone to medical school there. They knew me. I wanted to go back to the Bronx and live close to my family because um, I was going to do this. And so I went back to the Bronx. I lived close to my family. And they told me, you know what? We're not going to get reimbursed for you, but that's okay because you can probably get us a lot of RVUs because you're trained as a surgeon. And sure enough, my third day on uh, on my residency in, in emergency medicine, a guy arrested on the table after penetrating trauma. And the attending looked at me and said, will you teach the chief how to do an open door academy? And I said, yes. <laughs> so I did make the money in my RVUs. At the same time, I drove them crazy because I didn't know how to read an EKG and I had no clue how to manage asthma and I had no clue how to take care of a febrile infant. And I had to learn all those things. So that brings me to another point um, about when I decided to do emergency medicine, I did some shifts in the emergency department where I was working as surgeon and they told me, why do you want to go do another residency? Well, if you just want to work in the emergency department, you can work in the emergency department. We'll let you work in the emergency department. And you're shaking your head. And I had never heard of AAEM. I had no clue what was AAEM. But I said to the chair of surgery, it would be grossly immoral and unethical of me to work in the emergency department as an attending when people are coming into the emergency department and they think I know how to take care of them. And I don't. And I cited those things. I said, I do not know how, I know three readings of an EKG. My readings of an EKG is this is normal. This is an ST elevation MI. And this is called a cardiologist. That was what I knew how to read. And that was it. And I would no clue how to work up a febrile infant. And I told the chair, I said, if anybody comes in with asthma and they don't respond to like two breathing treatments, I'll intubate them. 
I mean, that's all I know how to do. So how is that fair to a patient who's going to come in and think that the doctor knows how to take care of them? They're trusting me with their body. And that was the same thing I said when I was a surgeon. People lay their body down on that table and they give me their body. And that is their second most precious possession. Your soul is number one. So their second most precious possession. And when they come into that emergency department, as we all know, everybody who's going to, you know, and everyone who's going to listen to this podcast knows, um, they're scared. They don't know what's wrong with them. They're in pain. And they trust the doctor to figure it out. And if I'm not trained in emergency medicine, it is immoral and unethical for me to pretend that I can figure it out. And that's why I feel the same way about nurse practitioners and PAs, nurse practitioners who have 500 hours of clinical training. They're trusted that that person comes in and they trust you to know that you can figure it out. And you haven't been trained enough to know how to figure it out. I had, I was a physician, but I hadn't been trained enough to do emergency medicine. And so I said, no, I'm going to do a residency. And my residency, fortunately, the Jacoby residency was, um, was an AAEM full member, you know, all the faculty and all the residents were full, you know, they enrolled all of us. And so we had the AAEM talk when I was an intern and I was like, oh my God, there are other people who think like I do. There are people who think that it is immoral to practice a specialty that you haven't been trained in. And so like, I was so thrilled and I decided then and there that that was going to be the organization that I give my time to because it is moral and ethical and right. And was that, that your first year of EM residency? Yes, that it was. Yes. Okay. It was. So you joined right away. Yep. I, yep. I joined right away. And I was so thrilled that there were other people who thought the way I thought. So that's amazing. I I really enjoyed that. You didn't say specifically, though, how long did you practice as an attending surgeon before you switched? Three years. Okay. Okay. So not that long. I understand that. So now you're an attending physician, of course. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm looking at you now as the immediate past president of AEM, and that is showing some dedication to service. So once you became a member of AEM, tell me a little bit more about what you've done inside of the academy before you kind of have ascended to the presidency. So I, I before I tell you that, I do want to tell you another story, right? So everybody joins ASAP because it's the college right, for emergency physicians. And the year that I was eligible to get FACEP, um, I, I filled out all the paperwork and everything else. And I found out that I was going to be inducted with other people who had not done an emergency medicine residency, that mm-hmm. other people were going to be made fellows of the college who had not done an emergency medicine residency. Mm-hmm. And I just told you what that the reasons that I did an emergency medicine residency and how much it meant to me and the sacrifices that I did make again in terms of time in terms of income all that other stuff so when I found that out when I got my packet from ASAP about the going to the gala dinner and all this other stuff I literally if my husband was still alive, he would tell you, I literally, I threw that medallion against the wall. I ripped the papers up. I started crying. And I said, this is outrageous that they are going to give the same honor to people who just worked in the emergency room as they did to me, who made a sacrifice to go back and do a second residency program and who care, I care about the patients that I take care of. And they couldn't possibly care about the patients that they take care of because they're going to make somebody face up who is, who didn't do residency training and who didn't take the boards. And I know that that has changed. I want to be frank and honest and fair to ASAP that that has changed. Um, But I will tell you that in the past few years, they put somebody up as president who was not, not board certified. And, um, and they, he did step down, but um, so 
what happened with me was I just continued, the message of AAM continued to resonate with me. I mean, I just, so I became very active in, um, I became active in different committees. Mm -hmm. um, I became active in my state chapter and, um, you know, I was in YPS and I, now at that time, the officers were men. And I also looked at the board. Now, Joanne Williams had gone off the board by then. And so I, I wanted to be on the board because I believed in the message of AAM, but I looked around and I said, there's no way that they're going to elect me because the board was entirely white men and nobody looked like me. Nobody sounded like me. Nobody. I'm like, mm -mm, this is not going to work. I'll never get elected. Even though I want to be on the board, I'll never get elected. And then I talked a little bit to Joanne and she said to me, no, I mean, you can do it. It's just, you know, things seem to have changed. There was a time when there were a couple women who've been on the board um, never more than one at a time, but, um, but yeah, but, but she said now things seem to have changed. And so I wasn't super encouraged. And then Mark Ryder and Kevin Rogers came up to me one day um, at the, like the very first day of a scientific assembly. And they said to me what I think are like, to me, the golden words that any ally can speak. They said, we know that we are not diverse. We want to be diverse. And so we are asking you to run for the board because you do a lot for AAM. You're active. We see that you care about AAM and its mission. So we want you to run for the board. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like scared that I wasn't going to get elected, but then I just thought to myself, so what's the worst thing that can happen is I don't get elected. I'm not on the board now. I won't be on the board if I don't get elected. So <laughs> I ran and I got elected. And well, I was only on the board for one year. <laughs> and Kevin Rogers and Mark Ryder took me and David Farsi out for dinner at an MEMC. And they said, the board needs to continue to get more diverse and the board needs to get younger and start thinking more. Of course, Mark, Mark's younger than I am, but you know, the general gist of the board. And they said the, the board needs to be younger and more forward thinking. And the board is too conservative. The board needs to change a little bit with the times. And we want the two of you to be the next two presidents. And David and I sort of looked at each other and I couldn't believe it. I had only been on the board for one year. And so I was like, okay. Um, and they're like, one of you is going to run for secretary treasurer and the other one is going to run for president elect. And I, um, I kind of took a deep breath and after it sunk in and I'm like, that is something I want. That was a secret fantasy of mine anyway. So I, but I said to David, you know what? I said, first, I think it'll be easier for you to get elected than for me to get elected. Someone who looks like me is a bigger stretch than someone who looks like you. And second of all, you've been a chair. So you have more administrative experience than I do, you know how to run meetings. And, you know, I just run my lab meetings. I just run my research division. Um, and so we agreed between the two of us that he was gonna skip being secretary treasurer. He was gonna run for um, president elect and I was gonna run for secretary treasurer. And it was a contentious election. It was contentious. I don't think there's been an election like that ever since, um, and I'm not aware of one before that, there was active campaigning, active, active campaigning. People were making up campaign buttons and people had slogans and people were giving out bling. And I mean, it was a contentious election and a, and, and, and a lot of what was heralded and highlighted was that that uh, exactly what Mark and Kevin had talked to us about, 
the, the guys that were running against us were like, we are the voice of experience. We are the voice of maturity. Mm-hmm. And these two whoopersnappers are going to come in here and they're going to lead. No, no, no. <laughs> but we won. We won. <laughs> we both won. <laughs> and um, yeah, we won. So he became president-elect and then was going to go on to be president. And I did my two years as secretary treasurer and, um, and, and got a lot of mentorship from both Mark and Kevin and then ran for president-elect. And, um, and I, I, by then I felt like I can win because yeah. I think that the membership is changing um, in, in its attitudes. The membership is ready for a fresh view. The membership is ready for somebody who doesn't look like all the presidents that came before. Um, and so I, I did it with confidence. I ran with confidence. I also knew that me and, and David and Mark were like the three musketeers. And I'm like, this will, you know, one's, we're going to be the team, the immediate past president, the president and the president elect. So we will, you know, we're, we're just going to work really well together and get a lot accomplished. And I think that's important. I don't think you have to be friends with the people that you work with, but it helps. But you absolutely have to have respect for the people that you work with. And you have to be working towards common goals. And so um, I think we did and we were, and, I, and I'm, I'm very proud of what we all accomplished. And I'm very proud of the fact that I said, as soon as I became um, as soon as, so this is one thing too, as soon as I was going to run for secretary treasurer and I was going to bypass my second year, I was going to vacate my seat and there would have to be an appointee for my seat. And so Mark and Kevin did not have to give me the courtesy of, of discussing it with me, but they did. And I'm sitting there listening to them toss around all these names. And I said, excuse me, excuse me. You are going to replace me with either a woman or a person of color or someone who's both, but you are not going to replace me with another white man. I am not going to continue to be the only on the board. And Mm. so they gave me a couple options and Megan Healy was the one who replaced me. So a woman replaced me. And after that, it was just like a roller coaster. We just started getting women and getting people of color. And now the board looks like emergency medicine. The board looks like the doctors who practice emergency medicine. And that's something I'm super, super proud of. Really, really proud of. I want to say one thing to you because As I'm listening to you kind of share your story and talk, I just want to say thank you because you, you and David's leadership did open the door in a lot of different ways. And I also want to thank, you know, Mark Ryder and Dr. Kevin as well too, because they had the site, they, they, they saw the problem. They didn't know how to fix it, but they started to go around the way to figuring out how to fix it. But what I appreciate you about you, Lisa, and what I've heard throughout your story is that you always reach back. You always find a way to make sure that the next generation is coming up. And so you are not the only one. And that intentionality is really important. And like I said, I don't want it to be over overlooked. And so as someone that has personally benefited from you looking at me and say, it is your turn now, um, that, that means a lot. Um, because I, when you say your election, I was, I think I was in medical school when that was kind of happening a little bit, or like early in residency when that was happening, But then now it sounds like your election could have been just very similar to what I feel like we just went through this year in the academy where there was a ton of people running for board of director for director at large. And it was diverse. It was a ton of women. There was minorities. There's there's white men. There's everybody. We really did look like the specialty. Um, but the the academy continues to vote for diversity, vote for something that's different, that that is voting for something that looks non-traditional. And so I love the fact that we're continuing on the same vein. We're listening to that voice. We're 30 years old. I joke with people like we're a millennial. (laughs) AM is basically a millennial. Um, And so the fact that our board looks young and vibrant and 
is diverse from different ages, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds with IMGs versus those of us who went to school in, in the United States all over the place. Um, but yes, I just want to say thank you for holding that space for, for the next generation and saying, nope, somebody else got next. Someone else has got next. That's really important to seeing us grow. I thank you for thanking me. And I think it is, is hugely important, but I will, I mean, this is, this is how I was raised. My grandparents instilled that in me. Um, They instilled in me the, um, the fact that I had to pay it forward, right? The fact that this isn't just about me. Um, and, And I think it's hard sometimes when people come from deprived backgrounds and you get an opportunity, you just want to, okay, now I got an opportunity. I'm going to keep, I'm going to, I'm going to keep it on the low. I don't want to draw too much attention to myself. I'm lucky. I got this opportunity. I'm not going to be too vocal. I'm not going to broadcast it too much. And that's a safety thing, right? For a lot of people. Um, But I was taught that, and I was, it was instilled in me from early childhood, like, no, you have to reach back and you have to bring others forward because you didn't do anything to earn this. Opportunities were created for you. There are tons of people in the world who are smart, who are capable, who never reach their potential because no one creates opportunities for them. And so I have, um, I was raised that way. This was inculcated in me by my grandparents, that and respect for patients, respect for the fact that every human being is created in the image of God and that you treat them with that kind of respect. I made a joke about a patient one time in front of my grandparents. I mean, it was, and and this is the truth. I had a patient who had a, um, had Crohn's disease and he had an intestinal rupture at Thanksgiving dinner. And I was literally, it's true. I was picking peas and carrots and mashed potatoes out of his abdomen. And I made a joke about that. And my grandmother slapped me across the face. I was an adult, right? She slapped me across the face at at the Christmas table in front of everyone. And she said, don't you dare ever talk about a patient that way again. You pray before you touch a patient and you treat that patient like they were made in the image of God. And and I will never forget that. And this is how I was raised, to have that respect for my patients and to have respect for and to pay it forward and think about the secession planning, which is hugely, hugely important. So people always know when I give my talks, I always say quotes and Booker T. Washington said, there are two ways to demonstrate your power. One is to push down Hmm. and the other is to lift up. And I think about that often. I think about how leaders demonstrate their power, but I also am a person who, as you know, spends a lot of time in the gym. And I always think that when I push down, right, when I'm exercising in such a way that I push down, I lower myself. Mm. When I pull up, I raise myself. And I've always wanted to believe that that's part of what Booker T. Washington was alluding to, that when we, when you push down on other people, when you exert your power by crushing people, by using people, by stepping on people, you, you lower yourself. And when you exert your power by lifting people up, you raise yourself to your best self, to your better self. And I think truly, truly that, and and many people have heard me say this, um, I am now a senior faculty member. I am a full tenured professor. Um, I have been a vice chair, I've been a dean. I'm, um, I'm at that point in my career where my career is pretty secure. And so I think, so what is my purpose now, right? And I know that, my dean, right, expects me at my level to be mentoring other people. But I think my God, who is my true boss, um, wants me to do the very best that I can to create an environment where every human being who is taught by me and mentored by me and whose life I touch, every human being has the environment in which they can 
grow and become everything they have the potential to be. I think that um, Youssef Salam, who was one of the Central Park Five, when he got out of incarceration, he said, everybody is born on purpose and everybody is born for a purpose. And you just have to discover what your purpose is and that everything in your life will make sense. And Catherine of Siena, the saint said, if you discover what you were born to do in this world, you will set the world on fire. And I think that everybody really is born on purpose and to a purpose and only you can do what you were put on this earth to do. And so if I am in a position of power in medical education, then I must create for every student, every resident, every learner that comes through my hands, I must create the environment that is safe for them so that they can learn and that is secure for them so that they can perform in an authentic way, in an intentional way, so that they can give the universe everything they were put here to give. And if I don't do that, then if I impede them, then they are not able to give everything that they have to give. And the whole universe suffers. The whole universe suffers. Yeah. And so that's, you know, as a senior faculty member, that's what I think our job is. Lisa, this has been an incredible conversation. Like I've, I've learned so much about you. I knew your heart just by watching you, but to hear you articulate it in this way is really, really special. Um, I guess before we close, do you have anything else you'd like to share? I just want to say thank you to the members of AAEM um, for two things. First, thank you for believing in the mission of AAEM, for believing in the mission that every single patient who has an emergency deserves care that is supervised and managed by a board certified emergency physician, um, that we are the team leaders, that we are the ones who are trained, we're residency trained, we're board certified, and every single human being deserves our care or the care, you know, and, and we stand for that in everything, right? Like if you, if you get anesthesia, you should have your anesthesia supervised by a board certified anesthesiologist. If you are delivering a baby, your care should be supervised by a board certified obstetrician. We believe that everyone deserves the highest standard of care. And we are going to see that that happens. It may not happen for every human being on earth in our lifetime, but it's going to happen. And it's going to happen because AAM has been the driver of that. So I want to thank all of the members of AAM for being driver of the best care for every human being on the planet. And the second thing I want to thank AAM for, and I'm getting teary-eyed, um, I want to thank the membership of AAM for electing me and for giving me the opportunity to serve. There is, I can't begin to express my thanks because what I learned about myself, what I learned about our specialty, what I learned about my colleagues, what I learned about the value of service, it was all theoretical until I actually lived it and did it. And, and I got so much more than I gave. And so I want to thank the members for giving me that opportunity. I will, I will remember it for the rest of my life. And I think that the lessons that I learned will be imparted to everybody whose life I touch. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. And thank you for standing for what is right and for what is moral and for what is ethical for our patients. That's what I don't mean. sound like you're, you're going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Of course, you're immediate past president, so you're on the board for a while, but it doesn't sound like your service to AEM is going to stop anytime soon. No, AAM is part of my life, and that's the organization that I've chosen to give most of my professional energy to, um, most of my professional organizational service time to. And I'm hoping that we, as uh, I have another year um, as immediate past president, and after that, I'm hoping that um, we, as the past president's council, 
get more involved, more actively involved, do more stuff to earn money for the lawsuit, as you and I, Kim, are going to be working on that, <laughs> and, um, and that we get more involved in other ways. And ultimately, I hope eventually I'm back as the past president's council representative, because I just, I love AAM. I love what it stands for. And it's, it's core to who I am as a physician. Yeah. Well, again, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. This was a beautiful conversation. I got to know you so well. And like I said, your heart for AM is obvious <laughs> and it's, it's, it's grand. And so I'm so glad that we were able to have you as a president and with your leadership and your vision. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I hope you will follow in my footsteps. <laughs> And then create your own brand and your, leave your own mark on AAM. We'll see what God has. I'll just That's, say that. right. That's right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website.